Would you open your Bibles now tonight to Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's pray together. Lord, we shift gears in one sense. In one way, this is a continuation of worship. We have worshipped you by singing to you from our hearts. We've reflected on truths that glorify you. We've expressed those truths. But now we continue to worship by listening to what you want to say to us. This is a two-way communication. This is a relationship. And we pray that through the words of this book, this text, that you might speak plainly to our hearts concerning issues of our lives, personally as well as corporately as the body of Christ, your church, your people. We submit ourselves to that, Lord. We surrender in this next 45 minutes to the spotlight of your Holy Spirit brightly shining through your word. Lord, I pray for each one who has come. Those that are carrying burdens. Those that are making plans and wondering what is going to happen to those plans. Some are dealing with relational hardships. It's hard to go home. And even their own house feels lonely to them. Lord, some have a heartache because of somebody they have loved is gone. They miss that person. Lord, others are struggling with just walking with you, trusting you. This thing following Christ is new to some here. Others need a fresh challenge. We've been around the Bible and around church for a long time. We're old salts at it. We need a renewal a fresh wind to blow through our lives. Lord, not only teach us, but challenge us to get involved one with another, to not be an audience, but a body. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the famous stories of 1964, now that's a long time ago, for some, was the heart-wrenching story that happened late one April in New York City when a young lady named Catherine or Kitty Genovese was walking home after her night shift early one morning to her New York City apartment. As she was on her way home, she was attacked and repeatedly stabbed that eventuated in her rape and death. The episode lasted about 30 minutes. She called for help. She screamed while 38 neighbors watched. Not one of them called the police. Not one of them stepped to intervene and rescue. They watched. It was plastered all over the New York Times, and it was such a shock to the nation that nobody would get involved that even one of the senators read the report to shock the Congress of the United States of America. Personal non-involvement. The watchword of so many Americans. I'm busy. I got my own stuff to deal with. I have my own life. And we become increasingly more isolated as our life wears on. Now, we've come to Nehemiah. A great example of involvement who hears a report one day because he asked the right question. And in getting the answer to the question, he feels the right emotion. He weeps. And then he had the right reaction. He prayed to the God of heaven. This is all in chapter 1. And then he performed the right action in setting himself before the Lord to be used to become involved in a need that happened in Jerusalem. For about 150 years, Jerusalem had been lying in ruins. The Babylonians had sacked the city. It had been destroyed. It was leveled. The gates burned with fire. 
The walls broken down. Oh, yes, Ezra had come back. The temple had been rebuilt, but the people there were awfully discouraged. How easy it would be for a character like Nehemiah, who had never been to Jerusalem, who'd lived in Persia all of his life and just heard about the stories of his forefathers to say, oh, but that's so far away. It's a blip on my screen as I change channels at night. I see those poor people in Jerusalem, but what does it have to do with me? Rather, it shook him to the core emotionally and it moved him practically to do something about it. Now, we read 11 verses that comprise chapter 1 last week. This evening, we're now into chapter 2. I want to read a story about involvement, and I've kept this story. It's, uh, it's been in my files for years. Dear Skip, Sunday evening, my husband and I, both of whom are senior citizens, visited your church as we do from time to time. When we went to our car after church, we were dismayed to discover that we had a flat tire. I went into your church office where Marianne, a volunteer, graciously helped me in calling AAA, offered me a seat while I waited a long time to reach AAA. Because of the president's visit, the president of the United States was in town at the time, AAA couldn't help us for about an hour or so. Mary Ann asked a couple of young men in the hall if they would change the tire for us. On our way to the car, another young man volunteered to help also. While the three young men were getting out tools and the spare tire, up drove a young mother with two children in her car. She hopped out with an emergency puncture can, which the young men were able to use to pump up the tire quickly. The young woman would not let us pay her for the can. She said, oh... We're supposed to help others as Christians. After the flat tire was blown up, one of the young men insisted on following us home to be sure we had no problems. Additionally, Mary Ann came out to our car to be sure we were getting all of the help we needed. We were deeply moved by the good Samaritans at your church and the love for Christ they demonstrated by their deeds. It's a beautiful story of just, well, we're supposed to help another Christian Who has a need? Oh, you have a need? I can help. Involvement rather than personal non-involvement. We looked at those four ways to build up the body of Christ last week. Those four ways to build the kingdom, to get involved. Tonight, I'd like to give you five steps in leadership toward that goal. Now, we're going to look at Nehemiah. He's the guy that does this. He does five things. And let me just say that if you're a group leader, if you're going to go start a church somewhere, like Tim mentioned, he'd like to overseas. If you're uh, forming some home group or you're going to organize some outreach event, all of these five steps will be useful to you. We'll begin in verse one and we'll make it through the chapter. And here's the first step. Waiting on God. Waiting on God. You see, usually we think, waiting? I see a need. I don't see a need to wait. I see a need to act now. And so our first impulse is to move quickly ahead with some action plan. Go back to verse 11 of chapter 1. Part of his prayer is, O Lord, I pray, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, that's him, and to the prayer of your servants, that's those who had come from Jerusalem, who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now that's the setup for what you're about to read. The setup is he knows he's going into his boss, the king, Artaxerxes of Persia. He's the cupbearer. That's his job. We discovered what that was last week. He's like the personal bodyguard who would taste food and wine that would be given to the king. If it was poisoned, he would die. It protected the king. So he's about to approach the king. He wants to approach him. But notice now the first part of the next verse, chapter 2, verse 1. It came to pass in the month of Nisan. This is not the vehicle. This is the Jewish month Nisan. Don't think trucks here. Think months. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence 
before. That's quite a statement. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my father's tombs lies waste, its gates are burned with fire? It had been four months between chapter one and chapter two. Chapter one opened up in the month Kislev. That's between November and December. Now we're in the month of Nisan. That's around mid-April. It's been four months since representatives from Jerusalem came and gave the news to Nehemiah in Persia. Four months of nothing. Four months of waiting. Four months of Hanani and his buddies going, so what was the weeping all about that Nehemiah had? What was all this grief of heart and tearing of his clothes and mourning before God? What good does it do to tell him anything? He's not getting involved. He's got the position to talk to the king. He's not doing anything. Look at verse 1 again. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said, why is your face sad since you're not sick? In Persian courts, get this, servants had to act happy all the time or they would be banished or killed. The idea was... That was their law. That the idea was to protect the king from sadness. So, you know, just like somebody who's in the um, service industry, maybe you work in a hotel or a restaurant, you may be having a bad day, but you go, hi, how are you? So glad you came. Inside you're going, I hate this job. <laughs> but you can't say to them, you know, I really hate this job and I really don't care to help you, but what do you want? You can't do that. And it could mean death in the Persian court. He had never been sad in his presence before, but the king noticed it. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Oh, no. He knows I'm sad. I could be banished. I could be killed. Nehemiah has had four months to harness his unhappiness. He's prayed about it. He's had time to process it. This is four months later, and he is still still unconsciously bearing a sad countenance. What I like about what we read is the king doesn't seem to be too moved by it. He's not upset. Obviously, they have a good relationship. He notices it. And what I believe Nehemiah is experiencing is what we read in Proverbs 21. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. That's what it says. And like the rivers or the courses of waters, he turns it wherever he wishes. He is living that out. He is watching God take this king's heart and turn it wherever he wishes. But here's the point I want to bring us to. In chapter 1, Nehemiah heard the news and he prayed and wept. In chapter 2, he remembers the news and he prays and waits. He prayed and wept. Now he's praying and waiting. That's hard to do. Listen, it takes more courage in a battle to wait than to shoot. You get scared. You get impulsive. You just want to start shooting at everything and everyone. Courageous soldiers know how to wait. Warriors need to be waiters. And so he's waiting for the right time, for the right moment. And now it seems like the right moment. The king notices something and brings it to his attention. God has his own timetable. And have you noticed something? God's timetable is rarely ours. God, why haven't you done anything? God isn't late. You may be early, but he's not late. He's always punctual, perfect timing. And we need to be ready to wait on the Lord. There's three great passages of Scripture that come to my mind. One was Moses when he said to the people of Israel. Now, you've got to picture what it was like to look back and see an Egyptian army ready to crush you. And uh, uh, land barriers on every side that you cannot pass. And a, a body of water in front of you, you're boxed in. 
And they are freaking out. And they start complaining. Moses, you should have just left us in Egypt. Why would you bring us out here to die? And he said, stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord. Just wait. Watch what's going to happen. When it did, I bet they went, whoa. It was worth the wait. Ruth had gone out to the field, discovered this handsome man named Boaz. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, that night said, sit still and watch what happens. Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. Sit still, see what happens. The other is in Psalm 46, where one of the sons of Korah, whoever wrote that psalm, tells us basically the same thing. Be still and know that I am God. There comes a time when though we'd rather move impulsively and make the action plan, here's my five-year plan, and go for it, we pause and we wait. And we want to see what God is up to. What it, what it means to wait, when you, when you hear people say, wait on the Lord, it, it can mean two things. Number one, it means that you're expecting God to answer, but you're giving him time to move. It also sometimes, but not here, but sometimes when it says wait on the Lord, it means just like a waiter who is waiting on the Lord's command. You're watching to see what he wants you to do. You're waiting on him like a servant in a restaurant or a servant in a palace who would wait on his master, ready to carry out the command. But, but this is a period of respite, resting and waiting on the Lord. And let me just say, waiting on God is never a waste of time. It's always an investment of time. But I got to tell you something. I'm not good at it. And you may not be good at it either. And that's why sometimes you'll go through trials because God wants you to get good at it. We're impatient. We want to move too quickly. We don't like to wait. So God says, okay, you're going to have to learn a lesson here. And, And it's not a bad thing. It's not that God is punishing you. He loves you. There's a great poem that says, as children bring their toys with tears for us to mend, I brought my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then, instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched them back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never did let go. So we bring those things to God and, God, how come you're not working? Well, let go. Well, let me just hold on to a little bit of it in case you don't work like I like it. No, let go. Waiting on the Lord. Number two, this leader not only was waiting on God, he now will be standing before man. And there's a principle. One follows the other. If you can kneel before the king in heaven, you can stand before any king on earth. There's a real boldness that he has before the king. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, as soon as he said, what do you want? I bet he thought in his mind, bingo. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. Now there is an open door. And so he shoots up a quick popcorn prayer, I call it. He didn't have a, a lot of time here. He didn't pause and go, Hallelujah, and just start worshiping. He didn't have time for that. In Persian courts, if you were silent before the king, it was regarded as treason. They just off with your head. So it was a quick like, okay, Lord, here it is. Give me wisdom. And he spoke to him. It says he prayed to the God of heaven. That phrase, as I read it today, bounced out at me. Because I I picked it up at the very beginning of chapter 1. He hears about the news in Jerusalem. He mourns and he prays to the God of heaven. Here, he prayed to the God of heaven. And I suggest that it's here because it's telling you and I what this guy's perspective was. And it's a perspective, frankly, we often forget when we pray. We often forget where God is sitting in the arena. He's in the top row. There's a tremendous vantage point of what God sees from where God sits. 
He is the God of heaven. He's the God in heaven. We're down on the earth and we see things from such a limited perspective. We have to realize we're talking to the God of heaven who sees all and is in total sovereign control. And you know why that's important? Because if you don't recognize that, you will be absolutely overwhelmed and in despair by the circumstances around your life. Is evil abounding as you look around the world? Uh Uh-huh. Crimes. Wickedness. It is overflowing. And as we look around, it's easy to be depressed and distressed. As Corey Ten Boom used to say, look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus, be at rest. And so he realizes God of heaven and he shoots up that quick prayer. That's why worship is so important. The reason we begin our services with an ample time to sing and focus upon truth, the word made music, isn't as time filler before the message. Oh, we need 30 minutes to fill this thing up. Yeah, let's put music there. We do it to adjust our perspective. That's why I never want to be late for the worship time, the singing time. I want to be there because there's enough stuff that happens in any given day that to come midweek and now make a perspective adjustment and realize who I'm talking to, who I'm dealing with, and put all of that stuff onto him, it lifts me. It lets me act in confidence, as Nehemiah does here. So notice here in verse 5 and on down, he's very bold. He's going to ask for big things here before this king who could take his head off for looking sad. Listen to how bold Nehemiah is in the presence of this king. He is obviously confident that God is pulling the strings. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that is the Euphrates, that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And he's going on a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the walls of the city and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Boy, Nehemiah is prepared. He was ready when the king said, what can I do for you? Well, now that you ask me, he just fires off three things. He's not just prayed up. He's prepared with the right answer. He's done a little bit of homework, a little bit of research. Why? He even knows the name of the keeper of the king's forest. See, he's done his homework, his research. He knows what it takes to get from point A to point B. And he says, here's my chance. And he brings it before the king. Did you notice his approach to the king? He's coming boldly, and yet he's acting humbly. He says, if it please the king... He didn't come in and say, now I want you to know something. I'm performing the will of God and you're going to let me go, king, whether you like it or not. I'm out of here. He doesn't do any of that kind of nonsense. He's very humble, trusting. Listen to this, that God is able to work through human authority. A key in leadership, whether you're a leader or not, whether you're a follower or a leader or you're a leader of leaders, is the principle of submission. If it please the king. Now, I know some people think, well, I don't need to really submit to anybody. I just submit to God. I remember that scripture in Acts where we must obey God rather than men. You're right. But do you know that people in the Bible were respected spiritual and even secular leadership, trusting that God was behind it? God can move even wicked kings for his glory. Let's see. Cyrus, a godless king. 
mentioned by God in Isaiah hundreds of years before he is born. Cyrus was called my servant who would perform my pleasure. And God used him to give the decree for the Jews to go back after 70 years of captivity. Let's see. um, Caesar Augustus um, tried to pull rank by having everybody registered and go to their own house or their own uh, township to be registered and taxed. God was behind that. God needed to get people who lived in Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph. I'll use Caesar Augustus. Make him think he's a big shot. But it's really God behind the scenes. God is able to use human leaders, even wicked. And there's a principle of submitting to that. And this man, Nehemiah, is surrendered to that. There is an indication in secular history that there was unrest in the nation of Egypt at this time and the island of Cyprus. That could have made Artaxerxes a little uneasy. And he thought, hey, if this guy wants to go to Jerusalem, that is about as far west as you can get. I trust him. I'll let him quell any kind of uh, disagreement or problem that is in that area. So God could have used that. Verse 9. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So He's traveling with an entourage, bodyguards, a military group. When Sanballat, the Horonite, we'll read more about them coming up. But let's just look at it. We'll mention them. Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Just plant this little marker in your brain that anti-Semitism has ancient roots. It's nothing new. It's satanically inspired. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And sometime we'll do an in-depth study in that. And this is one of the places we'll stop. Somebody's angry that God forbid the Jews should be treated well and given a homeland to settle in that was theirs anyway. Okay, these two guys are representatives. First of all, Sanballat is the governor of Samaria. He's worried because a new guy on the block means less territory for him, which means less taxation revenue for him. So it's going to shrink his pocketbook. So he's pretty upset. Then you have Tobiah the Ammonite. If you know anything about the Ammonites, you know that they've been enemies of Israel for a long time. Back in Deuteronomy, God said... The Ammonites are your enemies. They didn't let you travel through the land when you wanted to go from Egypt to the promised land. And you remember Balaam the prophet, that false prophet that was inspired by the Ammonites to curse Israel. So that's the background of these characters. Now, beginning in verse 11, we have the third principle. Waiting on God, standing before man. Here's the number three. Assessing the need. Assessing the need. So I came to Jerusalem. That little phrase is simple to us. So I came to Jerusalem because a few of us, a couple weeks ago, a month ago, were on a trip to Israel. What did it take us? About 24 hours to get there? About a day? We go, that was a long time. It took him at least two months because he walked. So, so I came to Jerusalem. That's a two-month journey. He's very tired. And I was there for three days, just hanging, cruising, resting. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down. Its gates were burned with fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate And to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. That's how littered the road was with stones from the destruction. And so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did The work. For the first three days, no doubt, Nehemiah met up with another famous person named Ezra. And they chatted about the conditions. And the other leaders were there. 
And he probably filled them in on what the king said and how permission was given and what's on his heart. Maybe just to Ezra. But at first he didn't tell anybody. What he did is he got on his animal and he took a night ride, probably under a full moon, and just surveyed the damage. He wants to assess the need. He arrived into Jerusalem from the north. Now, it's a little bit unfair because if you were on our tour to Israel, and if you're not, I'm sorry, but you will be next time. Right? Good. I heard that. Yes. They arrived from the north, which is the area of Golgotha in the present day, where that bus station is. And then he moved into the city and surveyed the damage on the other side, the eastern side, the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Hinnom, down in that valley between the temple area and the Mount of Olives. He's through the gates. He's down by the pools where the Gihon Spring was, and he's just checking out the damage of the city. By the way, there is evidence today, archaeological evidence, that Nehemiah was hanging out in Jerusalem. There are several walls that you can trace back to the rebuilding of the walls by Nehemiah. And there is even the broad wall that is mentioned in this book that is broader than most of the walls in the city that have been found put there by Nehemiah. You can, you can walk on top of it today. There's evidence of it. But look at that phrase, verse 12. The phrase, God put in my heart. I told no one what God put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Before God does a significant work, he does an inward work. We touched on that Sunday. Before Jerusalem will be rebuilt, God is doing a work with Nehemiah. He's already given him an emotional, spiritual desire to go back to Jerusalem. Now in seeing the walls, he's getting an assessment. He's doing a work inside He's giving what we Christians like to call vision. You've heard that term tossed around. We like to toss it around a lot. Usually we mean, what is your plan? What is your vision? From the biblical perspective, a vision is what is God's plan that he asks you to carry out? So he's getting God's vision. What should be done? What is the plan for God in this city? One of my favorite stories, I've mentioned it maybe on another occasion, is the story of that great stone that was cut out of the famous Carrara quarries in Italy and shipped to Florence, where all the great masters at one time were living. Donatello, Michelangelo, and others. And uh, it was put out in the churchyard, this huge piece of marble, this stone. One of the great masters, Donatello, looked it over and he saw a crack that ran through it and he said, oh, it's flawed. I can't work with this stone. My stone must be perfect. He rejected it. Others came by, rejected, rejected, rejected. Michelangelo saw it one day. And he looked it, he perused it, he went on all sides and he said, there's an angel trapped within and I must set it free. He saw in that stone potential that no other artisan saw. That's vision. He saw the potential and he worked on that stone and he chipped at it and he honed it. And he made out of that flawed stone his greatest work. It's called Michelangelo's David, which still is in the city of Florence to this day. There's an angel trapped within and I must set it free. I think God looks at our lives. He's got vision, doesn't he? He, he has to have vision to, to pick us. God looked at Skip one day and everybody else said, reject, 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 reject. And God said, there's something there. If I get my hands on him, I can do something with him. And can I just say, if God can do it with me, he can do it with anyone. God looks at you and he has vision. And God wants you to start seeing your community, your church, these as opportunities that God wants to set free. That's vision. So there's a time of quietness, and he went to examine the walls. That's what the text said. The word examine, by the way, is a medical term couched here in the Hebrew that means to probe a wound to find the extent of the damage. Like a doctor would say, oh, I, I see how deep it is. I see how long it is. I know what it needs in terms of antibiotics and suture. 
to examine the wound to find the extent of the damage. A good leader will take time to assess the need, examine the facts to see the extent of the damage, and I would suggest in any ministry opportunity, you start looking at it as a surveyor would look at the walls. Look around. Move around. See what needs to be done. You go, oh, no, no. We don't have time for that. We've got to get busy. A lot of people want to start ministries. And I will say a lot of churches want to have their bulletin look like an itinerary from Los Angeles International Airport as soon as they can. Just stack it full of opportunities to get stuff done. Why? Well, we're supposed to have lots of ministries. Well, hold on. Wait. Find out the need. Assess what you've got first. A.W. Tozer said something that is convicting. It usually is when A.W. Tozer says it or writes it. He said, aimless activity is beneath the worth and the dignity of a human being. The great weight of exhortation these days is in the direction of zeal and activity. Let's get going is a favorite watchword for gospel workers with the result that everyone feels ashamed to sit down and think. Isn't that good? Let's just sit down and think. What does God want? What is the need here? Let's assess the damage. Principle number four. Rallying the people. Rallying the people. Wait on God. Stand before men. Assess the need. Rally the people. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lies waste. Its gates are burned with fire. Come Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. First step is to be honest about the problem. You see it. Let's fix it. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so they said, let us rise and build. And they set their hands to this good work. At the right time, but not too quickly, at the right time, Nehemiah communicated the God-given vision that he got through personal, prayerful, careful assessment to just a few people, it says, just a few men who were with me. And then he communicates it to the greater group. He says, you see the problem, now let's rise up and let's build. An important principle in leadership, in organization is you got to surround yourself with the right people. If you have people who are around you that don't want to move, don't want to build, it's going to just take a long, hard journey. Amos said this, Can two walk together except they be agreed? So if you have two people that don't agree, it's going to be difficult to walk together. Either you're going to fight the whole way through or eventually you're not going to walk together. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Study after study shows that people in life in general cannot function effectively without deep connections to other people. Isolation is the worst thing. As Donald Joy says, we all need people around our trampoline. When we bounce up and down, you need people on this side, this side, this side. And if four people walk away and go to lunch... Your trampoline's down. So when you're bouncing through life with a physical, emotional, spiritual problem, you need somebody around you, several significant people holding your trampoline. Now, look in verse 17. He said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. You know why I'm emphasizing those? He's been in Jerusalem for only three days. He's a newcomer. He's identifying himself with the problem. You know, so many people would have come into that situation and say, you know, uh, my name's Nehemiah. I'm an expert at these things. I've been around Persia a long time. I've seen a lot of building. You people have a problem. In fact, you are the problem. He says, we have a problem. 
Let us together build. Criticism squelches motivation. When you identify with people, you encourage motivation. I'm with you. Let us do it together. Instead of this false us-we dichotomy. Or you uh, separation versus us. So he identifies with them. A lot of times people in marriage suffer from um, this problem. You know, it's not my fault, it's her fault. Everybody knows it, except for her. Um, It's the if-only syndrome. It could go like this. You know, if only she would be sweeter, then I would do this. Well, if only he'd do that, then I'd be sweeter. Well, if only you do that, then I... And it's the if-only syndrome. And it happens also in churches. It's the if others. If only others in that church did this, then it would be good. Or if only they, but we have to say we. There was a dream that a church leader had one night, a very unusual dream. And dreams don't always make sense, do they? They're sort of awkward and and, uh, tied together weird. Uh, This dream was like that. He pictured a banquet table. And uh, it was beautifully separ- uh, uh, set out and decorated with food and, and the best drinks. And people were sitting around dressed up, men in tuxedos, women in their evening gowns. And the weird thing about the dream is that nobody could eat because all of their arms were tied to little boards, tied around so that the elbow couldn't bend because they had these boards that were tied to their arms. So it would make it difficult to eat because you could grab a piece of food, but you couldn't take it to your mouth no matter how you tried. So the dream was a frustrating dream, and these people grabbed the food and they couldn't bend their arms because the arms were tied to boards and they were just having a frustrating time until one brilliant person decided, yes, but I can take a piece of food and reach across the table and feed the person on the other side. And they all caught on, and they all had a wonderful meal together as they served each other. Because it was us and we instead of me and my meal and my food. And it was a wonderful experience. Dwight L. Moody had one of the greatest sayings. He said, I'd rather find a hundred men to do the work than for me to do the work of a hundred men. Nehemiah would have said, Amen, let's build these walls, boys. So, verse 18, they said, Let us rise and build. And then they set their hands to do this good work. They didn't say, Ah, Nehemiah, we've tried that already. They didn't say, Ah, Nehemiah, uh, don't rock the boat. You know, these guys, Sanballat and this other Ammonite character, they're going to be so mad. Just leave it alone for a while. Interesting to note something about Nehemiah. He was an outsider. And it was the outsider that came in that was needed in this case to bring fresh perspective, fresh vision, and fresh faith. Nobody there was encouraged. They were all discouraged. They had tried it before. It didn't work. They had done things. It didn't work. Nehemiah hadn't tried it before. He hadn't been there. He'd been over in Persia. And he's an outsider, and he comes in, and he talks all about God and what God has done and what God can do, and let's build. And so they said, yeah, we're with you. Let's build this wall together. And they put their hands to do it. This is how I want to apply that, and we're about ready to come to a close Sometimes newcomers come to a church, and it could be any church. It could be a great, successful church anywhere. Newcomers come, and I would just say we're at a stage where this is a new church. We're building a new community. We're getting to know each other in a new way. And to me, it's exciting to see what the Lord is doing with us. But newcomers come to a church, and it can happen at any stage of the church, usually not at a newer stage like this, but when the church has been around a while. And they functioned in a way a while. But newcomers can come to church and um, they, uh, they face the problem of the past regime. They do things a certain established way. And they find, the newcomers find, that you have to work your way up through the ranks. You've got to break into the system. 
Because you want to get involved. Well, you can't get involved as you go through this class. So that class takes two and a half years, four nights a week. But after you do that, we'll let you work in the parking lot. <laughs> and it's just like a bottleneck. Because they've got to work themselves, themselves to the ranks. And some people are close to it. You know, it's like, don't open the windows. We're afraid of fresh air. No, no, open them up. Fresh, new perspective. We're open to ideas. Let's go for it. Let's finish out the chapter. And here's the fifth and final principle. Opposing the enemy. Opposing the enemy. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official... And, there's another one, Geshem the Arab heard of it. They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right in the memorial in Jerusalem. Now, the chapter ends on this last final principle opposing the enemy for this reason. They get all this vision, all of this perspective, all of this unity, common goal. They're about ready to build the wall that's been lying for 150 years, right? You think, wow, this is great. They're going to do it. And as soon as they have that great vision, they are opposed by the enemy. Now, there's a lesson in that. You've heard of Murphy's Law, right? Murphy's Law is anything that can go wrong, will go wrong. Let me give you another law. Lucifer's Law. Lucifer's Law is whenever you set in your heart to do right, he will attack you. Do you think that when you make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly or I'm going to go start a church somewhere, I'm going to get involved in this ministry, I'm going to really plug into this church. You think that hell's going to give you a standing ovation for that commitment? You think the devil's going to go, yay, we're going to root him on, boys. He's going to go, oh, really? And he'll take out his little arrow fashion just for you. You're going to be a target. And that's an arena. You've got to be ready and willing to pay the price when you step into that arena because the enemy will come against you. I think of David. David was a little shepherd boy having a great time until the day that the prophet came by and said, David, you're going to be the next king of Israel. His life changed for the worse. He was hassled by Saul. He had spears thrown at him. He was chased for 10 years through the deserts. He hid in caves. The enemies of Saul, the armies of Saul became his enemy, wanted to kill him. He went from shepherd boy to target overnight because he was the anointed of the Lord. Now, I figure this way. If Nehemiah wanted to build a city anywhere else in the Persian Empire, I don't think he'd have been hassled. The fact that he chose Jerusalem, which is the place God had preordained that his name be set, that's where the enemy got mad. And Satan inspired these three to come against them. The, the devil likes nothing more than to take the wind out of your sails. You get excited for his work. Bam! He wants to just push you down. The first American steamboat sailed from New York City to Albany, New York. Took 32 hours. People laughed. The first car, the first automobile, was passed by a horse and buggy like it was standing still. People laughed. The first airplane took off and 59 seconds later came to the ground. People laughed. Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and said, let's build this city for God. And people laughed. So, bottom line, you want to serve the Lord, buckle your seatbelts and be determined to stay at the job. Don't be like so many Christians who begin with a bang and end with a whimper. They lose their enthusiasm. Don't be the kind who says, well, I'm hanging around here for a little while, but if I don't get my way, you don't have the ingredients I like here, I'm going to find me another church. Or I'm going to start me a church. Remember Chariots of Fire? 
there was a guy, a character, who played Harold Abrahams. Harold Abrahams, 1924, won the gold for the 100-meter. Harold Abrahams was, in this movie, actor played him. There was the part where he suffered his first defeat. And he's so despondent. He walks over to the bleachers and he sits down. His head's down. He's pouting because he lost. His girlfriend comes over, puts her arm around him and tries to encourage him. And he shrugs it off. And he says in that Scottish brogue, he says, if I can't win, I won't run. And she looks at him and smiles and says, but if you don't run, you can't win. (laughs) It's true. You just can't quit. As V. Raymond Edmonds said, it's always too soon to quit. If you don't run, you can't win. And God would say, run like the wind and keep running. And don't let anything dissuade you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, place a burden on our heart to see your work accomplished. In our lives, our families, our communities, brothers and sisters in this fellowship, even though we're busy, we pray that we would want to work and sow things into their lives. Make us, Lord, willing to sacrifice something to see your will accomplished. Help us, Lord, to gather facts, to get vision, and to submit to leadership. Lord, help us not to cling to a past method that we have seen work elsewhere. Help us to be open for you to do something new in our midst. Lord, I pray that we would never cooperate with the enemy to weaken the work. Lord, help us to be builders, encouragers, setting our shoulder to the work, our hand to the plow. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And finally, Lord, we pray and we pray it with all of our heart. Send a revival. Send a revival that would shake Orange County just through our own personal lives. Revive us personally. That we would love you and serve you and be devoted to your word and be real with people and authentic and just live the Christian life in a very fresh way. Let it be like a fresh wind that blows through our midst. In Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed with that said, Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.